Hey, this is Kevin Bossemeyer with UCI Conversations, and my guest today is UCI alumni Jim Guerino, who graduated with an English degree in 1985. Six months ago, in June of 2019, Jim was the commencement speaker at UCI's School of Humanities. So, what happened in between? For a man who does not have a resume, Jim has a pretty amazing resume if you ever dreamed of working in the music business. But Jim not only talked the talk, he walked the talk. You see, Jim started promoting local music club gigs for up-and-coming bands before college. When he got to UCI, he became student music commissioner, booking Crawford Hall and the soundstage with bands like The Cure, Oingo Boingo, George Thorogood, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. After college, he went to work for Avalon Attractions, the biggest Southern California concert promoter at the time, and by 1992 was the general manager of A&M Records, working directly with legendary owners Herb Albert and Jerry Moss. He also reported directly to A&M Records chairman Gil Friesen, who Jim has recognized as a huge mentor. Jim co-wrote the children's book Legends, Icons, and Rebels, Music That Changed the World, and had a hand in producing the documentary film 20 Feet from Stardom about backup singers, which won the Academy Award for Best Documentary in 2014. Currently, Jim is the owner of Rebel Walls, an entertainment company based in Laguna Beach. Previous management clients include, get this, Beck, Social Distortion, Nine Inch Nails, Gwen Stefani and No Doubt, Rancid, Chris Cornell, The Offspring, and Robbie Robertson, who was in the band and took Bob Dylan Electric in the 1960s. So, wow, that's quite a resume. Welcome, Jim. How are you today? I'm doing well, thanks. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. For those of us who missed your commencement speech uh, in June, can you tell us what your message was? First off, I was stunned to be asked to do it. It's like, okay, you know, I've seen a number of commencement speeches, and, and it's, it's, I think it's an honor. And, and, and I also felt that my uh, trajectory was not really favorable to someone who would be giving a commencement. It took me nine years to get out of college. And I explained this to everybody, and they said, no, no, we like that. We think that's okay. You know, and I said, okay. And then you go, wow, what do I do? How do I, you know, I mean, like, I remember Steve Jobs' commencement speech. I mean, I've seen some great commencement speeches. So I probably did something I shouldn't do. I started watching them. And it was a bit of a mistake because it was daunting and you can't help but shrink in the presence of some of these amazing, amazing speeches. But I started to notice there was a bit of a convention to them. One of them was be bold and fail. And that didn't sit great with me because I guess maybe after nine years of trying to get through college, I'd done my share of failing, you know, and and I thought of these kids with student loans and it's like, hey, go fail. No, I got to pay my student loan back, you know. But what did start to click for me is what's the opposite of that? What I think a lot of people struggle with and what I made the theme of it is, how do you deal with success? How do you deal with success? I work in an industry where when bands break and get popular, that's when everything goes south. I've heard it said many times, success kills more bands than failure. You look at all the great bands, they break up. The Beatles had a recording career of only seven years. There's countless musicians who have overdosed or or committed suicide, you know? So my business has been rife with people who've not been able to deal with success. In a much more subtle form, people who have success in their life in various forms are confronted with that as well. And I thought, I want to say that to these kids. These kids are likely, you know, they're graduating from UC Irvine. They're graduating from an elite university. They're probably going to find some level of success. And then they're going to find there's something missing. 
there's something that it doesn't, the corresponding result just doesn't, doesn't fit with what their expectation is. And so I wanted to talk about that just a little mm-hmm. bit through my own experience, just what I went through, all of a sudden, finally getting out of school, because I didn't graduate high school, finally getting out of school, and aggressively coming out of the gate and having a, a rapid ascent in my career, and then going like, huh, this is it? This was, I thought this was going to be the fulfillment, and then finding out that, that it wasn't, you know? At, at what point did that hit? Was it after A&M Records? Was it... No, it was, it was during, you know, there's a point, in, and it isn't a, a singular realization. You're, you're doing it with your friends, the guys that you came up with, and all of a sudden, the people that, you're, that you've been rising with, everybody's kind of like, this isn't working, you know, this isn't connecting, why am I not enjoying my job? All I ever wanted to do was be in the music industry. When I, when I graduated from UC Irvine, I got paid a whopping sum of $250 a week to drive from Costa Mesa to Encino. And I felt like I won the lottery. So how do you go from that to having much greater financial remuneration and being dissatisfied? And so I started to feel that. And I'm like, what, whoa, something, I need to tweak the recipe here somewhere. Something is something has fallen out of sync and and I'm not enjoying it and and I love this it's not the people I don't love it's not the music I don't love it's not the artists I don't love what is it that 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 that's not connecting and and part of it is just you start getting older you start realizing you need to have an adult relationship with your job it's one thing to be 24 years old and saying I want to go to 300 shows a year which I did I was out every single night you know what I mean I loved being out every single night. Then all of a sudden you get a little older and you might get a girlfriend or you might get married or you might have children or something. There are other things that start to fill the real estate. They start to fill the, the space in your life and, and you start to strain against that. But you don't know what it is, you know, and, and, and that's what started to happen to me and I couldn't quite figure it out. And that's when I said, if a genie popped out of a bottle, what would I do? Well, I wouldn't worry about the m- money I was making. Okay, well, find a way to cut your expenses. And I did. I said, I'm, I'm going to find a way to live off of 25% of what I'm currently making. And I moved to Laguna Beach. And and I just started a small business, but for all the right reasons, for the reasons of just doing it out of joy and, and not worrying about the growth of it. And then it just, it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I always would say to my employees, getting big is not hard. All you have to do is keep saying yes. Staying small is hard. Staying small is real difficult. And focusing and really curating the time that you spend making it have the, the most opportunity and the most enjoyment at the same time. It kind of came out of a, a period of time as I started to have success at A&M. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Going out 300 concerts a year, that's exciting. And it's in that environment, like you said, a lot of people have gone south with that kind of success and it's, it's kind of a party atmosphere. But you don't strike me as a party 24-7 guy. Well, I'm much older. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's yeah. not the 80s. The 80s yeah. were a, a, a lot different animal. And, and, you know, fortunately, I grew out of that. You know what I mean? But, but, you know, and it wasn't, you couldn't sustain 300 nights a year. You know, I was working some of it. Some of it was just for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I was that way as a 15-year-old. I was out every night. Like, I didn't stay home. I certainly wasn't doing homework. You know what I mean? I was out every night with my friends doing something. So it was a continuation of, of behavior that I had, you know, but if you told me at age 15, I could be at a concert every night for free, 
oh man, that would have been yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. And now I'm in my 20s and I'm able to do that and go out to any club in town and any concert and, and, and go out. It was just like fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then there were ones that I was working where I had to coordinate the payment of the bands and meet with tour managers and meet with tour accountants and coordinate with our people. And, you know, some of that was, was work as well. And some was just, you had to be there and be present. And then some of it was just fun. All of it was fun, really, mm-hmm. ultimately. Yeah. I love the story that I've heard about you where you were going to concerts, Anaheim Convention Center, Long Beach Arena, the Forum, and then you transitioned to clubs. Can you talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, that was a big one, and, and it has a lot to do with a specific time, you know, in my life and, and I think in the in the trajectory of what was going on musically. And music, you know, you're coming out of the 60s into the 70s to big rock shows. Like, it was big rock shows. Cal Jam, the Us Festival, uh, Anaheim Stadium, you know, I remember seeing Rod Stewart and the Faces there. and uh, I was there too. <laughs> yeah, and... and uh, um, Loggins and Messina were number two on the bill. Number three on the bill was Fleetwood Mac. Right, right. You know, they were, yeah. they were Stevie and, and, and uh, Lindsay had just joined. And I saw the who at the Anaheim Stadium. But everything was big, you know what I mean? And as a result of it being big, there never was a concept that I would ever be able to participate. It was just way beyond reach. This, yeah. the, the, look at these things. These, this, is like, this is like, I have a video camera and I think I'm going to make Star Wars. No, you've got a video camera. It just didn't, it didn't connect, yeah, you know? Right, right. And then... All of a sudden, punk rock happened. And when punk rock happened, and that kind of music, you were seeing those bands in clubs. And it was much smaller. And, and I didn't realize it at the time. It was a much more visceral experience seeing bands when you're three feet away from them. And, and it's moving, and it's really, really powerful. It's, the, it's sort of the difference, between, to some degree, between watching a film or going to a live theater. Live theater just has a different energy about it. And... Once I was in that shrunken environment and enjoyed it so much, I was going out and doing that all the time, I started being able to say, well, I can do this. I mean, I can do this. If you joined us late, you are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is UCI alumni, humanities commencement speaker, and music industry executive Jim Garineau, talking about his journey from UCI's Crawford Hall to the biggest stages in music. Now he shares an early story connected to UCI. I'll tell you a funny story. I, I, I don't know if I've ever told this story. So I'm either booking Social Distortion or managing that, I forget, but I decide with a buddy of mine, we're going to do a concert at the Placentia Boys Club. So we go meet with the Placentia Boys Club. We tell them what we're going to pay them. They're like, wow, we'll, we'll, we don't get paid for an outside thing like this. This will be good money for us. They have no idea what they're in for because punk rock in the 80s was rabid it was it was it was a different kind of social media the way that the the fire of the information would spread and and because it was uh most clubs were not allowed in orange county they shut down the cuckoo's nest they shut down safari sam's anywhere you go they were trying to limit that kind of music being played and why were they shutting it down i mean because if it was just lucrative that tends to go okay but was there violence was there what what was there was no more violence at the at, at a punk rock show than there was at a raider game which means it was pretty violent. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, but you know, it was... People looked different. It, it, right, right. People looked did. threatening. It wasn't tattoos? That no, was kind of... it wasn't even the tattoos. Yeah. I don't think... It was just spiky hair, different... Short hair. If you had short hair... I remember I had a short haircut and somebody just walked up and he goes, Hey, Devo, what's up? And you're like, what are you talking about? Like, they just... But... So I get set to do this show at the Placentia Boys Club. And I'm at UC Irvine. I'm working at UC Irvine. And at Crawford Hall, we had a wooden ticket booth. 
that we would set up on the bridge going across. Crawford I kind of remember that. And you would get your tickets and check right, in. Right. I went just with a pickup truck and grabbed that ticket booth and borrowed it for the night. <laughs> I returned it. But I, well, it I, just used to sit out there, right? They didn't take yeah, it in and no, out. It just sat it there. Just sat That's there. right. It did. I remember it that. It just sat there. And I thought, yeah. well, they're not using it tonight. And, and I need one. I'll never forget. I hired this really nice couple. I can't remember their name. They were younger than me because everybody was younger than me because I was older going to school there. Very straight-laced. Sorority girl, fraternity boy, boyfriend, girlfriend. And they had been doing the ticketing. And they were very straight-laced, but, but very, very nice. And I asked, would you do the ticketing? And they agreed to do it. Well, at one point, there were so many people around this ticket booth. I just remember looking and the ticket booth was moving on its own. And they had to kind of shuffle side to side because there were so many people pressed against it, just yeah. moving it around. And, uh, it, it, it and was wanting to get tickets. Wanting right? to get tickets. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, you know, that was just one, one of the many times where all of a sudden you felt like, well, I can do this. I can participate. And I started mm. to get some experience at UC Irvine at Fullerton Junior College. I did a couple shows. I had been booking a club in Fullerton called Ichabod's. On Sunday nights, they were closed. Where, were, where was Ichabod? I remember... Na- State College in Chapman. That's yes. what I thought. It's a Carl's Jr. now. Okay. But but they would have regular top 40 music during the week. And on Sunday nights, they were closed. Like It just was a dead night. And they let me book bands in there. And so, you know, whether it was uh, The Cramps or Social Distortion or Suburban Lawns or The Gun Club or all, all sorts of different, you know... Everybody thought everything was punk rock back then. It really wasn't. You know, I mean, the Blasters aren't punk rock. The Go-Go's aren't punk rock. But back then, everybody thought they were punk rock, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, this was definitely a newer kind of music. And, right. uh, and it was fun. And so I got experience doing that as well. It strikes me, that I'm a little older than you, Jim, that the, that when that... Because I was certainly into the, a lot of the concerts I've heard you talk about. Like, oh, you know, I, I either knew of that concert or the newspaper and everything and, and the calendar section of the Times and Sundays. But my ear didn't shift to punk. Like, mm. I, I was used to the rock and roll, mm-hmm. big shows, and there was that whole experience. And when, like, what I would say was just loud driving mm, in your face. Right. I couldn't make that. Now, over time, decades, right. I'm like... Oh, I get it. Right. I get Nirvana. I get, but certainly when it initially came out, I was like, I don't get it, and I don't like it. Yeah, a lot so, of people felt that way. Yeah. Not me. I yeah, it, yeah, right yeah. Away. I mean, and and there was, there were all sorts of things that happened out of that too. So if all of a sudden you're listening to X, which is a great punk rock band, and you hear the dissonant vocals, and that leads you back to Velvet Underground, and Billy Zoom's guitar playing leads you back into Rockabilly, and all of a sudden you're you're checking out, you know, Eddie Cochran, and and it's driving you back into the music catalog, and Johnny Cash, and and then ultimately boom, then you take another step, and you're listening to Hank Williams. Punk rock opened all that up for me, yeah. and and I love that about it. I mean, it, it really uh, it broke down many 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 barriers, you know, and and so that was a lot of fun. Reggae music, all of a sudden, you know, you're hearing the Clash sing "Police and Thieves," a Junior Mervin song, and you're like, wow, that's amazing, you know. And then all of a sudden, you're pushing into Gregory Isaacs and Jimmy Cliff, and you're like, I see where this is all going, and 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 I love that about it. It was really a, a very fruitful time and a time where 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 my music vocabulary expanded. Greatly, exponentially, just it blew open. It was yeah. it was spectacular, you know, and I, I, I love that. And I, I, I think I had just kind of come along with whatever was being played on FM radio at that point and just listen. I didn't have a much greater, you know, enthusiasm or curiosity beyond, oh, wow, that's the new Pink Floyd record, you know? Yeah. Awesome. I like Pink Floyd. That's great. Yeah. 
it wasn't challenging to me in the, in the way that punk rock was. Right. Not just sonically, but there was something also when you listen to punk rock music. The uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The primacy of 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 it was not about the sonics necessarily. It was about the energy and the composition and 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 the performance. And that was very similar to what Sam Phillips was doing with Elvis Presley on those first sun sessions. And so you drive into the sun sessions and you go, yeah, listen to how, how fundamental and basic this is, but it's got something. It has an energy. And that's what punk rock was doing as opposed to, I'm a fan of them, but more than a feeling by Boston. Well, that's just layer upon layers of guitars. And it's, it's, it's sort of what I described about the concert. It just removes you so much further. Like, Nobody can make that. Where's punk rock? Let's go. We can record that. And I remember bands that would record something and deliver an acetate to Rodney on the Rock, and they would play a party on Saturday night, and a week later that song would be on the radio on, on K-Rock. And it'd be like, Rodney would be playing it. You'd be like, wow, this is cool. And it felt, yeah. there was an immediacy to it and an urgency that wasn't present in the other music that I had been listening to. Gotcha. And I still love Jackson Brown. I still love Boston. I still loved all those bands. Um, but they weren't what I needed at that moment in my life, for sure. Yeah. Just in getting ready for this interview, many of the bands, I'd heard of them, but I never knew their music. So mm. I went to Social Distortion Prison Bound, mm. and it, it knocked me out. Oh, I was yeah. like, wow. It's great. Wow. That, yeah. Just that refrain, it was like, oh, I, I get it. So, right. very cool. So It's also, by the way, you know, people like Bruce Springsteen have heard that and come on stage with, Mike Ness from Social Distortion and brought Mike up on Bruce on Bruce's stage with him. You know, they he, he, you're right. not the only one who heard it. You know, what I mean, somebody else heard like, yeah, that that's that's rock and roll. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but back then, it was different. Right. You right. know what I mean? So it was missing some some of the, those other things, and and as a result, it kind of got pigeonholed, I think, unfairly. And now through time, people are starting to recognize it. Gotcha, gotcha. So you were in the the concert business, but by the way, Wolf and Russ Miller, do you did you were were they before your Steve you Wolf? Them? Steve Wolf got murdered, right? And what, after Steve got murdered, Jim opened up the Country Club up in Reseda. But at that point, that's when Avalon became ascendant and kind of became. It's very interesting. Larry Vallon, who was my boss at the Universal Amphitheater, worked for Steve and Jim, and he gave me a little tutorial on the concert industry in California. And you know, the guy who produced the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl. Bob Eubanks? Bob Eubanks. I almost brought my tickets up today. Did you really? Yeah. You went? Yes. Are you serious? <laughs> I got to bring you the... Now that I know oh you're... Oh, my I, God. I, I got one up on this guy, ladies wow. and gentlemen. <laughs> I am massively envious. I never saw the Beatles. I would have given anything yeah, to see the Beatles, yeah. you know? But, you know, it went there, and then and then uh, Wolf and Riss Miller, and then Avalon became the big dog in town, you know? So yeah, I, I missed the... I went to many Wolf and Riss Miller concerts, for sure, but, but I, I, I had nothing ever to do with them. So you you work in the, in the concert business, mm-hmm. and then you make your way to A and M Records, right? And really, where did you go there in nineteen eighty eight? Is that about? I think it was eighty seven or eighty eight. Yeah. yeah. And by ninety two, you're the general manager. I mean, really, that's really fast. Well, right? you know, a lot went on. Uh, Can Herb, you describe? That well, I mean, bit? Herb and Jerry sold the company to Polygram, mm-hmm. and the entire senior executive staff had stock and got bought out and left so there was there was you know uh, and there was an empty chair in every position you know what i mean so everybody moved up the ladder in terms of the sales department the creative services department you know the 
promotion department, every department, you know, wound up having opportunity, you know, so uh, I became part of that. I became, and, and, uh, you know, so it was my good fortune. The good news was, I think uh, a lot of the people who had been there previously, uh, I'm thinking specifically of my friend Tom Corson, who's now the chairman of Warner Brothers, they taught me the, the record industry. I didn't know the record industry. I mean, I'd never worked in the record industry. I was a concert promoter. I thought record people were the people who showed up at the end of the show to take pictures with the artists. Like they were just like ah, posers. Like they, they didn't they didn't ever seem that they, they wanted to help the artist on the road. And, and that was interesting because when Gil brought me and Michael Leon brought me into that, they, they brought me in uh, initially in the artist development role. And I said, well, what's artist development? They said, well, you're gonna tell us, a typical Gil answer. That's how Gil spoke. He spoke in, in circles sometimes, you know, and I thought, well, that's a big help, you know, but, <laughs> but my experience was concerts. And I thought, well, we're going to develop the artists and alive. And if they can sustain themselves live and be making money, we have artists that, that we can count on and, and work on their recordings, you know, and, and we know that they'll do something. And a lot of the artists, when you look at A&M, the, the big pop hits that they had, whether it's Sheryl Crow or uh, Sting or, um, you know, at the time, Janet Jackson or Amy Grant, they were all live artists. Every one of them. There were very few just manufactured pop acts. That wasn't what A&M did. A&M was in the real artist business. And, and there was, a, I believe, a strategy to it. I don't know if it was verbalized, but if you have real artists, you develop catalog. You have a long-term body of work. And when you look at those artists, those those they, they have multiple albums. It wasn't you know one and done. It was large bodies of work over a long period of time. And that was very, very much part of the A&M ethos for sure. Mm. So, you know, you're at A&M Records and now you're general manager. Was there any act in particular that you took from nowhere up to the big time while you were there? That, no no yeah. one person does yeah. anything. Do you know what I mean? That's just mm. a fact. You know, I... I uh, there's no question I became very close with Soundgarden and Chris Cornell became one of my very best friends and, and I wound up managing him when he went solo. Um, his wife, Susan Silver, still to this day, one of my, his now ex-wife, uh, he remarried, but, but still one of my best friends. And we became really, really close, all of us, you know? And, mm -hmm. and, and, and I always felt that, that Soundgarden would continue to do their thing and grow as artists and as they would grow, their music would, would move this way and the market would move this way. And that, that happened around Bad Motor Finger and then Super Unknown where they had a big, you know, their biggest songs, uh, Black Hole Sun, you know. And, uh, and that was great and, and, and time with them. And certainly I spent a lot of time with Sheryl Crow, you know, I mean, early on. Uh, there, were, there were a number of artists like that and Gin, the Gin Blossoms and, and uh, Blues Traveler I spent a lot of time with. And, and uh, you know, I, I remember coming in, it's like, you know, well, Sting doesn't want anything to do with me because, well, he's been with everybody else for 20 years. Like, what, what do you have to... And I remember my friend Jeff Gold saying, go, there are so many artists who are starving for attention. Go to them. And I thought, well, that's great advice. And, and so I started working with all the younger younger bands, you know, gotcha. and, and, uh, and, and, and that's where I was able to make a contribution. You are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is UCI alumni Jim Guerno talking about his music industry career. Here he opens up about his great mentor, former A&M Records president Gil Friesen, and the lessons he learned. I know Gil Friesen was a big mentor for you. Can you describe what it was that he 
brought to you that he sure. enlightened you about? Gil died on December 12th, so his anniversary of his passing. And so I, I'm flush with a lot of discussing Gil lately, and, and so it's fresh in my mind. When, uh, as I told you, when, when I first was approached to come to A&M, and I said, what's artist development? Gil responded, you'll tell us, Jim. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I remember after being there for a period of time, uh, a short period of time, I, I made a trip to New York. And uh, and he called me up, you know, and, and it's like, oh, Gil's on the phone. And I was like, okay, you know, the president, you know, I'm new at the label. And he goes, hello. And he goes, Jim, come down. I want to hear about your trip. So I walked down to his office and he goes, tell me what you did in New York. And and I tell him all the bands I saw and all the meetings I went to and, uh, you know, all the, all the, what I'd done. And, and he looked at me and he goes, that's great. He goes, you're never going to go to New York on the A&M dime again. And I was like, did you want me to spend more time in the office? Like, I didn't think going, nope but you didn't find any time to go to a gallery. You're in New York, you don't visit a museum, you don't see a show. He go, and, and so I don't know how much longer it was. I remember getting a phone call from his assistant that Gil would like you to come to his house for dinner in Brentwood on uh, Thursday. You can bring a guest. And guys were bringing their girlfriends or their wives. And we show up and he has his chef prepare, prepare a really nice dinner and there's three or four other people from the company there with their significant others and, and we have this lovely dinner and, and he goes, okay, well, let's go in the other room. I have something prepared for us. We walk in the other room and uh, there's a man sitting there and, uh, and we walk in on him and he goes, this is my friend, Bob Dalek. Bob is the head of history over at UCLA. Now you've, if you saw the Tom Hanks produced thing on the sixties or the seventies, Bob Dalek's all in there. He, he's written a number of biographies. He's a very, very, he's a phenomenal biographer, but he was the head of history at UCLA. And he goes, Bob, what did you prepare for us tonight? And Dalek goes, uh, well, Gil, I've got FDR or Vietnam. What would you prefer? And Gil kind of looked at all of us. He goes, I think we should start with FDR. And the guy gives us a two-hour lecture on FDR. Mm. And, um, I mean, Gil, you know, when I started making some money, he said, this is where you need to put it and how you need to do it. And if you're going to buy art, let me show you what to do. I didn't know how to buy art. I didn't know the, the, the level of investment that art was. And, and he taught me all of that, you know. And, uh he just, he just was an incredibly cultured man and, and, and a very curious man. He was always, this is pre-email, so you'd get a, a, you know, a letter with a note, please read this, and it would be an article from you know, The Economist or something, or you'd get a book, be prepared to discuss on Thursdays. Monday, I'm like, oh my God, I gotta read this book so quick. And, but he was, he was always that way, he was very demanding but only in terms of pushing you in really, really great, amazing stuff. And it really lit me up a lot. He really mm -hmm. motivated me a, a lot. And, uh, and I loved him, you know what I mean? And, and you couple him with Herb and Jerry, and these were just classy guys. Just, you know, you'd walk by, there was a row. We were on the, the old Charlie Chaplin movie right, studio. Right, right, was there and, a few times. And the lot is the lot. It's, it's, it, as much as A&M is a series of artists and, and executives, the lot was its own thing, too. Right, right. And you'd walk down the lot and you'd walk by Herb's and Herb would be, and, hey man, come on in. You know, now Herb, Herb and Lou Adler worked for Sam Cooke when Sam started his label. That's how they start. They start and they write Wonderful World with Sam and, and they're doing A&R for Sam. And, and, you know, Herb's an artist. He's a genius, you know. And what do you think of my painting? What do you think of this? You know, and he'd show you what he's working on. And he's just a great guy to, sh you know, just right. to chat with. And then, right. you know, walk a little further down. There's Gil's office and you're doing that. And then I go down and, you know, play gin rummy with Jerry, and the guy's an unbelievable card player. Just an, you know, he's 
He's that guy that was in those games in L.A., you know, the big stakes games with Walter with, Matthau and those guys, you with know. Johnny Carson? Was that, was Probably, that, I yeah, don't know yeah. for a fact, but yeah. I know, I, you know, I, he, he was a great, great card player, uh, very competitive guy, really bright guy, and I'm still, I am still talk to Jerry all the time. And um, so it was just a great environment, you know what I mean, to mm-hmm. work, and, and, and they weren't just, I remember one time I'd come up with an idea, which I don't even remember, and I pitched it to Gil, and he goes, well, that's a great idea, Jim. We could probably make a lot of money and buy some really nice big houses in the valley, couldn't we? Just totally insulting me. He goes, but that's not what we're here doing, is it? He just wanted more. It wasn't enough. You had to bring the, and I know he influenced, I mean, I, I just rewatched when he passed away, I put together his memorial for him, uh, for his spouse Janet and uh, we did it at Royce Hall mm-hmm. and uh, and it was a phenomenal afternoon and uh, was, the, it, did, was the place packed? Yeah and, the, and the, the night before we screened his documentary 20 Feet from Stardom at CAA and uh, Stevie Wonder all these different people and all of a sudden this woman walks up to me goes, are you Jim Guerino? and I just smile and I go because I know who it is and, and, and I say yes I am and she goes my name's Carol King and I go I know who you are, Carol. I'm a big fan. <laughs> in that book, Legends, Icons, and Rebels, I wrote the Carol King chapter. Like I, oh, yeah, I am a yeah. monster fan. My sister had tapestry. She's seven years older than me. Like, yeah. I love Carol King. Yeah. And she launches and she goes, well, I want to perform tomorrow. I think what we should do is, and, and Carol is the person, if you were in a session, just reading her history, she was very organized. She had it together. She was... She was like the producer of, of her own sessions. She really had a vision for what she wanted to do. And she yeah. launches on me. And she's like, this is what I think we need to do. I'll come out with Mary Clayton. And Mary was in, in 20 Feet from Stardom. Uh, unbelievable singer. Was one of the Ray Letts uh, for Ray Charles. And we're going to do Wake Shelter. Rolling yeah, Stone Shelter, Rolling Stone The backup song. singer. Exactly. That, Extraordinaire. Yeah. Unbelievable singer. And she goes, we'll come out. And I'll sit at the piano. And... Mary can start singing way over yonder and then I'll do the second verse and then we'll come in for the third and that's how we opened his, his memorial with Carol and, and, and Mary you know and, and later on Brian and I remember I, the only thing I said to Carol I said I just need you to sound check are you going to be comfortable doing that and of course she's like oh yeah what time do you need me there and we exchanged cell phones she was there I don't know like 8 in the morning you know and I was hanging with Brian Adams and Adams and I are the same age and we're just standing there watching the two of them sound check just going do you believe what we're watching like this is unbelievable, you know. It's just unbelievable, and we just had had just just a great time. And then later on, Lisa Fisher, who's also in the documentary, sang with Sting when Sting did his thing, and I just rewatched that. And and Suzanne Vega played, and of course Herb played, and and Brian Brian played, and it was just a and then interspersed with friends of his that spoke, and it was just really a spectacular uh, mm-hmm. event. But Gil Gil was a profound influence. You know, I remember when my father passed away, I said, you know, I've always said that you're like a second father to me. And I said, I hope you understand this. I, I can't say that anymore. I go, I now realize you only get one father. You know, there's only one guy who released the bike and was there. There's only one guy who bought me my first baseball bat. There's that the, you've been a tremendous friend and mentor, but, but I, I think it dishonors my father by saying it's a second father. And, and he totally got it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Totally yeah. got it. Just a great guy. Yeah. Just a great, great guy. But I, I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't feel his influence. And I know that sounds bold. Like really, like not a day goes by, you know. It's just uh, he was he was something. You are listening to UCI Conversations. My guest today is UCI alumni and music industry mogul Jim Guerno, talking about his amazing career. Here, Jim shares the major impact 
that his UCI education had on his life. To bring it back to UCI, something I read that you said, Jim, was that how UCI, the English department, took you to 30,000 feet above and you got to look at stories and, and um, you know, the, the, the stories that move the world. And it gave you a breadth of experience to then take into the music industry and to listen to artists and what they were talking about. Can you talk a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I mean, I have kids now. And so my, my oldest is a junior at USC and my second oldest is a freshman at NYU. And both of them want to be in the music industry. And they're like, well, we're going to take the music industry classes. I go, well, you're going to pay for college yourself then because I'm not paying for that. And uh, I go, you need something more. you know. And I felt like Gil saying this, like that's not enough. That's not enough. That's, that's, that's treating your college like a vocational job. And I know what I got out of UC Irvine and why I would encourage anybody to, to, to get an education is it pushed me in places that I didn't even know there were places. You know what I mean? It was like semiotics and, and, and looking at language and truth and, and reality and, and just Foucault and Derrida. And, uh, I'm not going to do that on my own. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm not going right. to look at that right. and, and, and coming to understand, you know, just a word like truth, you know what I mean? And, and starting to think, you know, like when I say the word blue door, you think of something and I'm thinking of something completely different. How do we align? How do we how do we communicate? How do we use language to to bridge ourselves into a form of communication when it's so errant and it has so many complications to it? And I wouldn't have even I wouldn't have even begun to think these thoughts at, uh, without the education I got at UC Irvine. I had no idea what I was walking into. I had no idea what I was walking into. I mean, I really didn't. I just knew that I didn't want to work yet, and I needed. I, I wanted to graduate from college, you know. And and I had no idea what a tremendous education. And 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 to some degree, uh, I'm a little bit disappointed in that. You know, the youth is wasted on the young. Like I I, I didn't take as full advantage of it as I should have. You know, I kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. I just kind of, I wasted a lot of time. What was your involvement with uh, Clyde Davis, another music industry icon? In 94, you know, I was was hitting pretty much on all cylinders work-wise. And, uh, you know, not unlike bands, executives get hot. And I was having my moment. You know what I mean? I was having my moment, and people were trying to hire me uh, from different places, and uh, and so I was, and 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 I had a, I had a record executive experience where we were doing very well at A and M, and people wanted me to come work for them as a record executive. Concurrent, I had signed the Offspring as a management client at the same time, and they would go on to sell 11 million records of a debut record. So it looked like, oh my gosh, this guy's got, you know, he's got both things going at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's when Sony had offered me the the job of being president of Columbia and Clive was uh, and Sony were offering me the opportunity to start my own label because I was signing bands and they thought I could do that. So I wound up doing that with Clive uh, and and forming Time Bomb Records and, and, and it was a, a great experience culturally completely different than, than where I come from. Clive is, Arista is the antithesis of A&M. Um, but I thought that was actually fine because I wanted something complementary, not identical, you know? And, uh, and they gave me all the room in the world to do what I wanted to do. 
I just never had the hit record. I had some great artists that we signed, Sunny Day Real Estate and Social Distortion. I, I wound up putting on the label and the Vandals and Reverend Horton Heat and artists that are still out there performing and touring and, and, and uh, very notable. Um, but you eventually have to, if you want to have the success of the record label, you have to have hits. You have to have hits. You can't just sustain. And, and uh, so it, it went for, for a while and it was good. And, and, then, and then he wound up exiting Arista. Um, there was a shift uh, with Bertelsmann and, uh, and Succession and all that kind of stuff. And, and at, at that point, it was kind of over. you know. And I had done that. And I still had my management business. I'd started with um, a good friend of mine, Terry Hardy, and Pat Hawk, Tony Hawk's uh, sister. We had started a sports management business. So at the time, we were managing Tony Hawk and Kelly Slater and Sean White and Bam Margera and all these, you know, starting the sports management. And I was having a lot of fun doing that. We put together a big years of touring for Tony, you know, arena tours. And uh, and that was interesting. That was like, okay, this is all new. You know what I mean? And that's what I liked about being on my own is if you had an idea, well, let's write a book. Oh, let's get action sports. And, you know, kind of you could go down and, and it, it made it uh, less predictable. You know, I'm, I'm the kind of person who will sit there and go, um, well, this is boring. I want to try something new. And then I try something new. And it's like, gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. There's nothing. I've never done anything like this before. So you're kind of stuck in the middle. You kind of are looking for some way to capture what you have experience in, but you're also trying to do something new. And it can be a very frustrating experience because you're in between. You know, you don't want to keep doing the same stuff you've been doing right. over and over and over again. That's boring. But then you try something new and you have no experience in it. So, you know, you've, you've got to just kind of yeah. plow forward, you know. Just a quick jaunt over into your book. Anybody that you broke your heart to leave? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, there's, I can't even begin to tell you how many artists that we left out that we, we that were pained to leave out. Like, I mean, so many. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, it begs the question, should we do another one? And we may or may not. I don't, I don't know. But, but um, you know, there's, there's a lot that got left out. But that's just the nature of physical book space. You know what I mean? You can't, right. you can't just make it, you know, a hundred artists, you know, it just wouldn't have worked. The, the, what, the Rolling Stones not being in that book really, you know, when I looked at that, I was like, whoa, uh, yeah. that was that, that was just one of the, one of the many or the band's not in there. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like the band isn't in there. <laughs> uh, uh, that, that kills me. The who's not in there. Right, right. There's no mention of Eric Clapton in there. Right. You know what I mean? And, and, and you start going down and you start realizing, well, there's, you know, uh, you're 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 missing Rosetta Tharp. Uh, 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 you're missing, yeah. y- you know. The list goes on. Jerry on. Lee Lewis. Right. You know what I mean. You're missing. It just keeps going. You know what I mean. Uh, Roy Orbison, Carl Perk. I mean, right. it just. I are, will say the artists that you have in there. Everyone, I was like, yeah, I can see why. Uh, every oh, yeah. per, every every person in that book should be in no that question book. yeah no question yeah. i mean there there's great argument to be made for each and, and, and every one of them you know it's funny though the book started it started as a cd project uh, we're gonna put cds oh, together okay with the songs yeah and then it was yeah. like i had young children at the time and i remember thinking like nobody wants cds but but as a parent i can't walk into barnes and noble and not buy 10 books like we buy books for our kids like like they're air like just we we just need more you know nobody's buying CDs for their kids. People are buying books. And I was like, well, how do we introduce music? So the kind of, and we had a whole other book that was written uh, called Billy and Mojo's Musical Adventure. It was a, a kid's book, much young, targeted much younger cartoons uh, of a young boy 
uh, and a six foot red cat, Natalie dressed with you know jazz like hat, and and he was a he had a pirate radio station, and they had a you know way of time traveling, and they would do things, and we realized after pitching it to a number of publishers that young kids they don't appreciate the historical context of what these artists are, and we were trying to do that, but I would always kiddingly say. You know, a, a five-year-old thinks, you know, or a six-year-old thinks Martin Luther King is a day off in January. They don't know the historical context yet, you know. So we had to push it a little older, and that meant reworking all the artwork and and rewriting the stories. Gotcha. Speaking of Martin Luther King, I read someplace that you went on the civil rights trail. I did. It was did phenomenal. You, oh my God! Can you just sure. describe that a little bit? So, a kid that I grew up with, uh, Jim Napier. He and I went to kindergarten together. Uh, I grew up in Rochester, New York. Our dads went to high school together, and we've stayed in touch. Uh, Jimmy went to Georgetown and Georgetown Law, and he's a big history buff. And um, we both turned 60 this year. And I said, hey, uh, let's give ourselves a gift. Let's go do this. We'll fly into Atlanta. There's a, if you Google it, there's a whole thing called the Civil Rights Trail. Um, and, and you can pick it apart and kind of do it a la carte. And, and so we went from Atlanta. First off, we made a detour and we went and saw our sixth grade basketball coach in, Myr- in Myrtle Beach, uh, which was unbelievable. And there's a buddy of ours uh, who lives in South Carolina too, um, Romel uh, Washington, uh, African-American kid who was bussed into our school. And we're all close friends. We all play basketball together. And, 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 and it was really interesting as we're getting ready to go on the civil rights tour speaking with him and saying like what was that like you know you were bust in you know like we were all part of this weird experiment you know yeah, and yeah. and talking about that and and you know just getting his point of view but so we went and did that we met the two of them we met what cool. Romel and we met our basketball and then we went to Atlanta and did Atlanta Birmingham Montgomery uh up to Memphis came down into Clarksdale home of the Delta Blues where Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil and came out of Clarksdale into Jackson, Mississippi, and then down to New Orleans and, and hit everything along the way. And it was just an incredibly eye-opening experience to be in these places and, and to see how they've memorialized them and, and what they've done. And, mm-hmm. and some of them were just... Montgomery blew me away. You know, Birmingham was... I mean, every... every you know, and, and, and along with that, watching documentaries that were associated with it. There's great uh, documentaries on Amazon Prime uh, and PBS about the Freedom Riders. And, mm-hmm. and I really, you know, seeing the, the, the civil disobedience and, and uh, what was going on and, and the fact that within the African-American community, there were different, there were schisms between CORE and, and, and Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian leadership and the NAACP. And the NAACP's modus operandi was to take a case legally and get a ruling, and these people are, are saying, like, no, we're going to do something, and they're like, you can't do that, it's going to make us look bad, and, you know, people didn't want the March on Washington in 63, they thought that that's going to blow up and become a problem, and, mm-hmm. you know, so there's there were all these competing interests within the movement, you know, it wasn't just this nice linear, right, right. you know, we shall overcome holding hand in hand, there were a lot of friction within the, the within, within that, and it was fascinating to, to unpack all that. Fantastic. Yeah. Jim, we're quickly running out of time here. I just want to let our listeners know, if you have been intrigued by the interview today with Jim, for the first time on my podcast, I'm going to recommend another podcast. It's Bob Lefset's yeah. uh, podcast. And he does a interview with Jim Guerno that will take you from before college 
all the way through now with his small management company. Bob was very good taking it chronologically, step yeah. by step. It's a really excellent podcast. Yeah, so. no, Bob's great. I love. I mean, I, I would encourage everybody to listen to all of Bob's podcasts because he does some amazing interviews with people that that you know. I just love hearing him interview. You know, all all over the map. You know, all sorts of different people. Yeah. Thank you for being with us yeah, today. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. Appreciate job. you having me. Thanks, yeah, Kev. You're welcome.